Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's been a full week since I did my last podcast. A lot has happened since then, but I have been traveling. As I mentioned on my last podcast, I was off to Orlando for the money show. And by the way, my keynote presentation, which is just under 20 minutes long, is already up on my YouTube channel. So you can go ahead and watch that anytime you want. My longer workshop, which is you know 40 minutes, 50 minutes, that one, I don't think The Money Show puts that up on the internet. They may have it for sale, I forget, on The Money Show website, but I did post the one that was already up there, so I encourage everybody to give it a quick listen. Also, as I mentioned, I spent a few days in Disney World. I was there with my family, and so it was difficult. You know, those are long days if you've been to that theme park. So I really didn't have any time to squeeze in a podcast. By the way, I want to give a shout out to the newest listener to the Peter Peter Schiff Show podcast, Dannon, who was our tour guide at uh, at the theme park. And, you know, if anybody who listens to this podcast, if you're planning a trip down to Disney World or any of the um, the theme parks in the Orlando area, I would strongly suggest that you hire this guy because it will dramatically improve your experience. I mean, not only does he really know the parks well, so you're never going to get lost, right? You'll always know where you are and where you need to go, but you won't have to wait on any lines. I mean, if you don't like waiting on lines, if you'd rather go on rides uh, than wait on lines, then you need to hire this guy. I mean, he's not cheap. Right. So it's going to definitely increase your cost, uh, but it's going to dramatically increase your enjoyment and you're going to get a lot more for your money. So I think it's definitely worth the cost. And if you compare it to what the theme park charges directly to provide a similar service or what other people charge, I think the guy is a real bargain. I mean, basically, we were at three different parks, uh, Disney World. Uh, Hollywood Studios, uh, Animal Kingdom, one park per day. 
waited in no lines, went on almost all the rides, I mean, all the rides that we wanted to go on. Obviously, there, you know, you can't do every single ride. But to give you an example, the longest line uh, at any of the parks was for the Avatar Flight of Passage ride, which I had never been on. Absolutely fantastic ride. Problem is, you know, it's a four minute ride and it's a three hour line to get on that four minute ride. Well, we did that ride three times the day that we were there and waited in line no more than, you know, five to 10 minutes uh, for each ride. Uh, so if you want to do that, right, if you want to spend your time on rides and not online, you should contact this guy and I'll give you his email address. It's mythemeparkguy at gmail.com. Mythemeparkguy at gmail.com. And his name is Dannon, like the yogurt. Uh, anyway, I want to start by going back to the jobs number that came out on Friday. I think what I did my last podcast, I went over the beat from the ADP report. Right? We got 291,000 jobs, as I recall. Um, the consensus was 154,000. So it was a big beat. There was a slight downward revision to, uh, to December. But so the, I think the markets were already kind of prepared for a better than expected jobs report based on, on the ADP beat. And that's exactly what happened. We ended up with 225,000 jobs gained, which was substantially ahead of uh, what the markets had been forecasting. But more losses for manufacturing. Manufacturing lost 12,000 jobs during the month, right? Those are the better jobs, the higher paying jobs, the jobs Donald Trump likes to pretend are coming back. Uh, so uh, we lost 12,000. In fact, this is the third month out of four where we had uh, losses in manufacturing jobs. But I think the real big number that nobody was really talking about were the downward revisions to prior years. Over the last few years, or that Trump was president, last three years, they now said that over 500,000 fewer jobs were created than was originally reported. In fact, the biggest year for downward revisions was 2018. The uh, Labor Department said that they had overestimated payroll growth during that year by 370,000 jobs. Right? That's almost 31,000 jobs per month, which is a big number because generally that's the margin of difference between uh, missing and beating what the analysts are expecting. So that means that all those months when the markets were celebrating uh, stronger jobs than expected, there was actually fewer jobs than expected, except we're not finding it out until over a year later. And in fact, you can look at the average now of total job gains over the last three years under Trump, and the average was 2.1 million jobs per year. That's the average of the last three years. Well, if you take the average of Obama's last three years, which were the three years that immediately preceded the election of Donald Trump, the average annual job gain during those years was 2.35 million. So in other words, a lot more jobs were added during Obama's last three years than during Trump's first few years. In fact, during Trump's third 
first three years, there was almost 20% fewer jobs created than in the similar time period for Obama's last three years. In fact, if you look at the last three years of Obama, even the worst year of job creation under Obama is better than the best year under Trump. That's how weak these job numbers have been. And in fact, if you want to look at private sector payrolls, in 2019, under Trump, 1.927 million private sector jobs were added. Now, maybe that sounds like a lot if you don't put it in context, but that is the fewest number of private sector jobs added in a year since 2010. That means just about every year that Obama was president, more private sector jobs were created than were created last year when Trump was president. And Trump is always bragging about the private sector, about how his policies have produced a boom in the private sector, that all these jobs are being created because of his tax cuts and his deregulation. Well, the main reason that job creation isn't even weaker is because of all the jobs that are being created by the government, right? Both the federal government and state and local governments are hiring more people. That is not a boom. These are not productive jobs. These are make work jobs. In fact, if anything, these are jobs that are just gumming up the works. These are jobs that are making the other jobs even less productive than they would be. So we would be better off without these government jobs. In fact, if you strip out all of you know the puffery, the real secret right, to uh, Trump's job creation is government, not the private sector. And where is the government getting the money to create these jobs? It is borrowing it. The deficits are exploding. We just got the numbers out today again for the fiscal 2020 deficit, I mean, it's just blowing the records through the roof. I mean, 1.1 trillion or whatever it is, which is uh, the official number, the actual number, of course, is much higher. But Donald Trump is setting records in government debt. Now, nobody cares about that. He didn't talk about that all, at all in his State of the Union address. Uh, it didn't even come up as a subject in the most recent Democratic debates. The Democrats aren't talking about the deficits. In fact, even if you look at some of the websites of the candidates, you look at all the things they want to do, all their policies, there's nothing about debt reduction. Nobody has a plan to tackle the deficits because thanks to Trump, thanks to the Republicans, no one cares about the deficits anymore, right? It doesn't matter how big they are. Well, this is exactly when people need to care the most, when the markets and voters and investors don't seem to care at all. But sure, you know, you could create jobs if you borrow a bunch of money and then use it to hire people, but they're not productive jobs. And these jobs are not being created for the reasons that Trump is claiming. But the bottom line is the job record under President Trump is not good. It's not even as good as it was under Obama. And, you know, I'm not, you know, flattering Obama. I'm not saying that, hey, Obama did such a great job. I'm just saying that Trump isn't doing a great job because he's not even doing better than Obama. I mean, if you think the economy is great now, well, then it was great when Obama was president because it's, you know, it's the same economy. Yes, the unemployment rate is lower, 
But that's because it had been trending down. I mean, if Obama could have been reelected to a third term, well, maybe the unemployment rate would have still been falling. I don't know. But I do know that one thing that caused some additional air to go into this bubble was the optimism surrounding Trump, which was backed up by tax cuts. So that enabled uh, employers to hire more people than might otherwise have been the case. Like, so could you imagine how much worse the job creation might have been if the tax cuts never happened? I mean, that's possible. But we still have to pay for those tax cuts. We have much bigger deficits. That doesn't mean we're getting all this for free. That doesn't mean all this government is free just because we haven't paid for it yet. The government borrowed the money and we're still on the hook for it. And we're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it uh, with inflation. We're going to pay for it with tax increases in the future. The markets, of course, did not care at all about you know, those prior downward revisions, they just looked at the current number, which was better than expected, and the market went up. In fact, the markets have continued to move higher. In fact, they're up again today. Uh, we hit record highs, I believe, in all of the major averages, except for the Russell 2000, which, again, has still not been able to take out its peak from the fall of 2018. But the Dow Jones Industrial Average, that closed at uh, 29,551, uh, less than 450 points away from 30,000. S&P 500, that hit a record. We closed up 2170. We closed at 3379. The NASDAQ also at record territory, up 87 points, 9725 today. Uh, this is, you know, we're getting close to 10,000 now. We closed at 9,725. Global markets are all going up, but none of them seem to be as strong as the U.S. market because they're not actually hitting highs for the year, whereas the U.S. market is. In fact, the U.S. dollar seems to have hit a new high for the year. I think the dollar index is now up at 99. That's the highest I've seen it since, I think, the fall of last year. Now, of course, gold... Gold is not going down. The strong dollar is not pushing down the price of gold. Gold was, uh, I think, off by a couple of bucks today, but we have been trending higher. So we closed at 1565. So we're not too far below that 1610 high uh, that we set the evening of the, uh, the bombing, uh, the, the Iran's uh, response uh, to our, our killing of the general. But in terms of the euro, the price of gold today is at an all-time record high. We didn't just take out the high from that night. This is the highest the euro price of gold has ever been in the history of the euro. Uh, so the dollar is hitting record highs, or gold rather, is hitting record highs in other currencies, which is a very bullish sign for gold because people who are nervous about the euro, more of them are parking their cash in gold than in the U.S. dollar. It is a better safe haven. And of course, the dollar really doesn't provide any type of safety whatsoever. And the people who have been uh, seeking out shelter in the dollar are going to find this out probably a lot sooner than they expect. But one thing that doesn't seem to be concerning uh, the stock market at all is the prospect of a Bernie Sanders presidency. I have been talking about a Sanders presidency on this podcast for a long time because I have been thinking that the pundits uh, have been underestimating the popularity of Bernie Sanders and the appeal 
of his message. And clearly, I was correct in that assessment because Bernie Sanders has won basically the first two primaries in Iowa and then yesterday in New Hampshire. Now, technically, I think uh, 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 Pete uh, Buttigieg won the delegate count in uh, Iowa, but Sanders won the popular vote in that state. And he won both the most delegates and the popular vote in New Hampshire. Of course, what was surprising to a lot of people, maybe not necessarily me, was the fifth place finish uh, of Joe Biden. You know, he didn't get any delegates and he was in single digits as far as the percentage of the vote that he got. Coming in third was Elizabeth Warren or fourth rather was Elizabeth Warren. Amy Klobuchar took third place. Pete Buttigieg was in second place. But Bernie Sanders, again, is the winner. And now if you go to predict it, right, that website for the betting odds, uh, Bernie Sanders is almost 50-50. He's 47 cents. Uh, so if you bet Sanders, it costs 47 cents to win a dollar that he gets the nomination. But number two is now Michael Bloomberg, right? He's 28 cents. Buttigieg is now all the way down to 12 cents. So he's pretty much almost a 10 to one long shot. Biden is a 10 to one long shot. He's 10 cents. Klobuchar is even lower, nine cents. Elizabeth Warren is all the way down to three cents, right? She's behind Hillary Clinton, who's at six cents. So basically, Bernie Sanders is the front runner. And I think that's probably exactly the news that Michael Bloomberg has been hoping for because he's been quietly running these ads all over the country. I see all these ads here in Puerto Rico uh, for uh, Mike Bloomberg, but he's been running all these ads waiting for the Democrats to fall apart because Sanders rises to the top. And now what is the alternative to Bernie Sanders, right? Well, Michael Bloomberg wants to present himself as the best alternative to uh, socialism and the idea that a socialist candidate can't win, but that Michael Bloomberg can. So I actually think even though he wasn't even on the ballot in uh, in New Hampshire yesterday, he actually is the biggest winner because everything is going down exactly the way he thought, because Joe Biden was his biggest rival and Joe Biden is all but out of there. We'll see if he survives. Maybe he'll make it to Super Tuesday. Uh, but that could be the end, although we'll see if he has any delegates. Maybe he holds on for a brokered convention. But I don't think a brokered convention would go to Biden. I mean, if Biden can't even get votes in the Democratic uh uh, you know, primaries, how's he going to get him in the general election? I think that uh, Michael Bloomberg may end up being a, a more viable a prospect, but I would not count Bernie Sanders out. I mean, Bernie Sanders, unfortunately, is going to have a lot of appeal, even though uh, he professes to be a socialist, because he defines socialism in a way that a lot of voters are going to find appealing. I mean, certainly he's promising to forgive all of the student loans. I mean, that is a very compelling uh, reason to vote for him. If you happen to have a student loan, uh, there's what, 1.7 trillion or something dollars worth of student loans out there. I don't think there's ever been a candidate to promise more goodies, more free stuff if you vote for them. I mean, think about all the younger people in their 20s and 30s that still have 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 or more of student debt. And they're thinking, hey, 
If I vote for Bernie Sanders and he wins, he's going to give me $30,000. He's going to give me $50,000. That's a hell of a lot of money. I mean, that's a powerful reason to vote for somebody. If you could promise to give people that much money, I mean, sure. I mean, if obviously if a candidate said, vote for me and I will give you $50,000, I mean, people think that's crazy. How could you give somebody $50,000? But that's exactly what Sanders is promising. If you have $50,000 worth of debt and that debt is forgiven, no strings attached, that's like you've just been given $50,000. I mean, if someone's going to give you $50,000, you're going to vote for that guy. So you got to figure that almost all the young people, even a lot of young people who might lean Republican, are going to think, you know, that's a lot of debt. I mean, how bad is it going to be? Let's just elect Bernie and I won't have to pay with this debt, right? I mean, so that's going to be pretty powerful. And I think there's a lot of other people that are going to buy into this nonsense because he's obviously going to be able to outpromise Trump when it comes from free stuff. And, you know, people underestimated the appeal of Trump. I think they're underestimating the appeal of Bernie Sanders now, especially if the economy turns down, which it easily could do. I know that obviously as we get closer and closer to November and this house of cards hasn't imploded yet, then that may not happen. And they may, you know, keep it, keep it up for a while longer. But you know what? Doesn't matter. Because if we don't get Bernie Sanders in 2021 we're going to get aoc or somebody like her in 2025 because there's no way we're going to make it to 2024 without this thing imploding even if we can make it to november of this year we're not going to make it to november of 2024 which means this thing is going to implode we're going to have a massive recession with massive inflation and trump's going to get the blame either he gets the blame in this election or in the next one. And of course, and it won't be Trump who'll be running because he can only be reelected once, but it'll be a Republican, just like Bush got the blame for the financial crisis of 08, and he couldn't run again, but John McCain ran and he lost because of Bush. Uh, and so even if Trump gets reelected, the next Republican will never be able to get elected because we'll get a socialist who's gonna come in promising to clean up the mess by making an even bigger one. But you know, one of the the problems that Bloomberg had, it wasn't all positive for Mike Bloomberg because there was an audio recording that came out, I think it was released by the Sanders campaign trying to torpedo uh, Mike Bloomberg, who again is clearly the number two. And he's gonna start participating in the debates pretty soon. Uh, So we'll see, you know, what impact that makes. I think, Warren has got to drop out and she's got to throw her support uh, to Bernie Sanders. But uh, even then, you know, Bloomberg is going to be the guy to beat. He's the guy with all the money. And, you know, I look at his website. He's even not that moderate. I mean, if you look at the things that he wants, uh, he wants a $15 minimum wage, which pretty much every Democratic candidate wants. But, you know, he wants a lot more government, a lot more government spending, a lot more regulation, higher taxes. I mean, not you know, like Bernie Sanders, higher taxes, but he wants to raise taxes uh, substantially, particularly on capital gains. Uh, But he wants a much bigger government. And he doesn't have a plan at all about addressing the deficit. I mean, that's not even on his radar. Uh, But all these candidates that, you know, the, the, the media thinks are moderate or not. I mean, I actually heard CNN last night describe Elizabeth Warren as being moderate. I mean, I guess everybody is moderate if you're comparing them to Bernie Sanders, 
But none of these people are moderates. I mean, it's almost like Donald Trump, you know, would be a moderate Democrat, you know, if he was if he was running. Uh, all these guys are far left. They're just not as far left as Bernie Sanders. So all of a sudden, you know, that's the new uh, litmus test, right? That's the new bar. And so if you if you're not that low, then then you're a moderate. So they're saying that uh, Bloomberg is a moderate. Pete Buttigieg, look at his website. I mean, he wants all kinds of crazy things. I also spent some time on Amy Klobuchar's. You know, of all the websites, hers is the least ridiculous because she doesn't even write on that website about taxing the rich. That's not even there. She doesn't, there's nothing in there about higher taxes. You know, there's an article in there about wanting the $15 minimum wage, but it's not even part of her plan. You know, so she potentially, maybe she's the least bad of these alternatives, at least if you look at what's written on her website. Not that I think she'd, she'd be good. I'm talking about being less bad. And in fact, she's the only person in that last debate, they actually asked the question, are any of you worried about having a democratic socialist at the top of the ticket? And she was the only one on the debate stage that actually raised her hand and admitted that she was worried about that. So, you know, maybe she's actually, uh, you know, the best uh, that the Democrats have to offer. Uh, but I think that she's not going to have the organization and the money to compete with uh, with Bloomberg. But, you know, people think that Bloomberg has a shot of beating Trump and he obviously does. But they assume that Bernie Sanders has no chance. And that assumption is is wrong. But again, back what I was talking about Bloomberg. So the Sanders campaign leaks this uh, interview and it's from a few years ago. And uh, Mike Bloomberg is talking about. A stop and frisk, which is now this controversial program when he was mayor and, you know, he didn't invent it. He, you know, he inherited the program. But basically in, uh, you know, poorer minority neighborhoods where there was a lot of crime, uh, the police were just stopping people and, and frisking them to see if they had handguns. You know, and if they were have, had a handgun, I guess they confiscated it. They didn't have a legal right to carry it. And the whole idea is, hey, we want to get the guns out of the hands of criminals. And they, you know, they were doing this. But it became very unpopular because obviously the vast majority of people that they were stopping and frisking were minorities, particularly African-Americans. But of course, that's where all the crime was. So that's where all the policemen were stopping and frisking. They were in the high crime areas, which were populated uh, by uh, minorities. And of course, if you are going to stop and frisk people, who are you going to stop and frisk? I mean, are you going to stop little old ladies? No, I mean, you're going to stop young uh, black Hispanic males. You're, they probably barely frisked any women because they're not the ones that are shooting up the streets. They're not the ones that are committing the crime. If crimes are being committed disproportionately by, let's say, young black males, then you're going to stop and frisk a lot more young black males. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. That's not racist. And Bloomberg knows it's not racist. He was honest. He basically spoke frankly and honestly about the realities of, of the police and how and how you work and how you yes you do profile people you profile people all the time right let's say somebody got raped and the policeman says okay uh can you describe the person who raped you and and the lady says yes he was a uh, uh very tall maybe six foot two young uh african-american male okay he's tall he's young he's african-american he's male all right now you're looking around for the suspect Obviously, you're profiling people. You're looking for people that fit that description. If you see an older fat woman, are you going to say, aha, 
Let's question her. Maybe, she, maybe she's the rapist. No, of course not, because she doesn't fit the description. It's not a discrimination or racism. It is discrimination because you have to discriminate. You discriminate by only questioning the people who match the description uh, of the person who committed the crime. But you know, if you know that a lot of uh, young black males are committing crimes, of course, you're going to be more suspicious of young black males because that's who's committed the crime. So he is acknowledging a fact, but he's acknowledging it, you know, uh, in a recording. And now all of a sudden it's a problem because he has been backing away from stop and frisk. He's now saying it was wrong. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I apologize. Why is he doing this? Well, because he's pandering to the black vote. He wants to get the black vote uh, from Joe Biden. Right. In fact, a lot of the black vote has been going to Bloomberg because he's advertising like crazy in all the black media markets. That's why. So now people know his name because they've been seeing his commercials constantly. And so now, you know, they're supporting Mike Bloomberg. And and so that support is in jeopardy if they can paint him as a racist and they're going to use these comments about that. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with these comments. The comments are completely accurate. What is wrong as Michael Bloomberg now distancing himself from his own comments and trying to say, I was wrong, I apologize. What he should be doing is standing up for his comments and being consistent and being honest. But he's not doing that. He's just lying. He's being a politician. But what really bothers me, I was watching uh, on uh, the news the other night and Sean Hannity uh, was talking about this. I'm watching the coverage of the uh, New Hampshire primaries and Sean Hannity. Oh, and by the way, they haven't aired my uh, my show, which I did tape for um, Tucker Carlson. It may air tonight. In fact, it, you know, so you check it out tonight. It's either they're saying it's either maybe going to air tonight on Wednesday or it's going to air on, on Thursday. But, you know, unless some other news items come up, but they have it in the, on the shelf and they can pull it out whenever they have room for it. But I'm watching uh, on, on Fox and Sean Hannity is talking about this tape. And if you haven't heard it, you know, just go listen to the things uh, that Mike Bloomberg said. Nothing he said was racist and everything he said was true, basically. And so Sean Hannity is acting outraged. He's saying these are shocking comments. This is horrible. He's calling him a racist. And I hate that, right? I mean, I don't like it when liberals feign outrage and I don't like it when conservatives feign outrage. There's nothing outrageous about what Bloomberg said. I mean, I'm sure Hannity privately agrees with every word of it. In fact, if Donald Trump had said the exact same thing, he would be saying, of course, he wouldn't be calling Trump a racist. But to pretend that this is shocking or outrageous, you know, no, that's that's stooping to the same level of the Democrats when they pretend that things are outrageous or shocking. The way people should attack Bloomberg and the way the president should attack him, don't attack him for what he said, attack him for what he's saying now, right? Don't attack him for the things he said positive about stop and frisk. Attack him for, you know, flipping and changing his mind only because he's running for president and just lying to pander to a voting block. And of course, what about the fact that all of the crimes, right? The people who benefit most from the police are the potential victims of these criminals. I mean, all of the victims are in these poor neighborhoods, which were disproportionately minorities. So it wasn't like these laws were being used 
against minorities. They were being used to protect minorities. They were being used in favor of, of minorities. But yes, of course, had this audio come out of a Republican, yes, the Democrats would be all over that Republican, calling him a racist, pretending to be outraged. But that doesn't mean Republicans should do the same thing. But if you want to call out the Democrats for having a double standard for not being outraged at the comments that were made by Bloomberg when they would be outraged if similar comments were made by a Republican, that's fair game. But don't pretend to be outraged yourself. Don't pretend that these comments make Bloomberg racist because they don't. You know, in fact, what's interesting, if you look at the two front runners now for the Democratic nomination, both of them are Jewish. Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen that. I mean, there's usually not even one Jew running for office. Now we got two and they're the front runners. They're in first and second place. So, you know, I'd hate for the first Jewish president to be one of these guys. Again, I think it'd be better if it was Mike Bloomberg than, than Bernie Sanders, uh, because on the scheme of things, I mean, I don't know how bad Bloomberg is going to be. And I also, if I, I'm pretty sure that most of the stuff on Bloomberg's website, most of these liberal policies that he is advocating, I don't think he actually believes them because Bloomberg has already proven that he's willing to lie to get elected. And I think Bloomberg knows what he needs to say to get the Democratic nomination, just like Trump knew what he needed to say to get the Republican nomination, right? He threw a lot of red meat to the conservatives. Well, Bloomberg is throwing the same type of red meat to the liberals. But I don't think he would govern anywhere near the way he's campaigning. I mean, just like Trump isn't governing like a conservative either. I mean, he's a status quo Republican. The swamp is a lot deeper and murkier now that Trump's been there for three years. I think the same thing would happen if Bloomberg was elected. I think he would tack back to the center. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think you can ignore a lot of the things that he's putting on his website, just like you can ignore how he's claiming that he was wrong in the past. No, he was right in the past. He's lying now. Uh, so Bloomberg, uh, you know, would be the better choice. But Bernie Sanders, what scares the bejesus out of the Democratic establishment is this guy actually believes everything on his website. He's not just pandering. I mean, he's the real deal. He's actually that dumb. He actually wants to do all of this stuff. Now, hopefully, right, a lot of the stuff that he wants to do won't make it through Congress, even if the Democrats control it. But enough of the stuff is going to make it through or certainly a watered down version of what he wants to do will make it through. And, you know, our real line of defense, our last line of defense is the courts, the judges. I mean, that's probably the best thing that Trump has done as president is appoint decent judges. I mean, much better judges than Hillary would have appointed. And so, you know, that's our defense, right? That's a defense against democratic socialism. Even if we get a lot of these plans, the Supreme Court can save us or even lower courts can save us by striking down these unconstitutional laws. Look, when they impose the income tax, the court struck it down. They said, oh, Congress doesn't have the, the authority to have an income tax. And it got struck down. Um, and they had to amend the Constitution. There's no way they're going to amend the Constitution again to allow for some type of Sanders program. Now, Obamacare was almost declared unconstitutional, five to four. And in fact, if the Supreme Court had the guys today that it had then, they may, it may have been five to four the other way. Uh, so we could be in a position 
uh, you know, where the courts will save us from all this insanity. But, you know, I think the markets right now, either they just assume that a Bernie Sanders victory is impossible. And if you look at the, you know, the betting odds on Predict It, Trump is still 55 cents. So Trump is a favorite, right? The markets are looking at better than a 50-50 chance of him winning. Uh, Then number two is Bernie Sanders, who's 27 cents, and Bloomberg is 16. So the markets are still thinking that Bernie Sanders is a long shot. But hey, he's not a 100 to 1 long shot, right? Maybe he's 4 to 1, which, you know, 4 to 1, you know, they pay off once in a while. That should be a very scary thing. I mean, why is the market at record highs, as I mentioned earlier, when you have this movement towards democratic socialism, you have the prospect of a president, Bernie Sanders, why doesn't the market care? And, you know, one of the reasons that I'm thinking is, you know, A, you know, again, they they think that uh, Bernie Sanders has no chance, and they're actually glad that Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee because they're confident that that's the easiest ticket for Trump to beat. Therefore, people think that Trump is good for stocks and they want more Trump then Sanders, you know, is the best way to get it, right? Although it's a very dangerous way because, you know, what if they, you know, what if Sanders actually wins? But that brings me to the second point is maybe the markets are thinking, you know what? Let's say Sanders does win and really screws up the economy. I mean, he won't be able to screw it up as bad as he wants because he's going to have to work with Congress. But we're going to get higher taxes more government, all kinds of bad stuff, more regulation, and we're going to go through a bad recession. Maybe the markets are thinking that's great news, right? Because if bad news is good news, well, horrible news must be even better. What they're probably thinking is if we're already getting rate cuts now when the economy is good, if the Fed is already back to quantitative easing now when the economy is good, imagine what we're going to get from the Fed during the next recession, especially if it's a Sanders recession. We're going to have 0% interest rates. Hell, we might even have negative interest rates. The economy will be so bad that the Fed goes negative. And if we like QE1, 2, and 3, and if we like what the Fed is doing now, could you imagine how much QE we're going to get if we got President Sanders? I mean, we're going to be getting trillions and trillions a year. The deficits will be bigger than ever. That means the balance sheet is going to explode more than ever. And maybe stock investors like, so it doesn't matter if we're in a recession. It doesn't even matter if corporate earnings go down. We're going to get all this money printing. And after all, that's what's driving the stock market. The more money the Fed prints, the higher the stock market goes. So the weaker the economy gets, right, the more bullish that is for stocks. That might be the mindset, right? It doesn't even matter what happens because the Fed has got our back and we're going to get even more money printing if Trump loses than we get if he wins. And we're getting tons of it if he wins because the budget deficits are exploding with Trump. They would do it even more if we had uh, Bernie Sanders. So I guess the stock market is figures they can't lose and so they're just buying stocks. But you know what? Look, even if the market is right, even if we create so much inflation because the economy is so bad under President Sanders that the stock market go- will go up, it won't go up nearly as much as the cost of living, right? It won't go up nearly as much as the dollar goes down, right? Let's say we have massive inflation and the dollar loses 90% of its value and the stock market triples. The Dow goes from 30,000 to 90,000. Well, I mean, if the dollar loses 90% of its value, the stock market has to go up tenfold just to stay even. If it only triples, that's a 70% decline. 
And it's the real value of stocks that count, not the nominal value. It's, hey, if I sell my stocks, how much food can I buy? How much energy can I buy? Or what can I buy with my dividends? If your stocks even pay dividends, which many stocks don't. Uh, so what people should be buying, if, you know, given the potential outcome of this election, they should be buying gold. They should be buying gold stocks. They should be buying foreign stocks. They should be buying stocks that pay dividends in foreign currencies. They should be doing exactly what I have been recommending people do for years. And in fact, speaking about the Fed and what the Fed is likely to do in the future, we can already talk about what they're doing now because Ben Bernanke was testifying today before Congress. He did yesterday. He was in front of the House and today he was in front of the Senate. And he's there to you know, field questions and, and talk about the U.S. economy. But the whole thing, again, is political theater. First of all, it's an opportunity for the Fed to pretend everything is great, right? And so Powell pats himself and all of his colleagues on the back uh, because the U.S. economy is in such a great place thanks to uh, prudent Fed policy. And like these guys actually know what they're doing. Uh, and we've got this good economy all thanks to them. And we have nothing to worry about, you know. Although somebody did say, you know, when, when should we worry about the debt? Right. It's over 23 trillion. I mean, when should we start to worry about it? And, and he said, well, you know, we should be worrying about it. We should worry about it now uh, because it could be a problem for our grandkids. Right. In 20 years, you know, they're going to be paying interest on this debt and that could be a problem. You know, it's not a problem for our grandkids. It's a problem for us. And it becomes a bigger problem the minute interest rates go up. In fact, Powell got a lot of questions about the repo market, right? And when uh, he was asked about it, uh, the congressmen or women, you know, talked about the glitch, like we had some kind of glitch in the repo market and then, you know, the Fed came in. It, it wasn't a glitch. It was the market, right? What happened in that repo market is interest rates shot up because there's so much borrowing and there's not enough savings to counteract it, offset it. And so rates were moving up, which is what they should do. Rates are too low. They should be much higher. Uh, and so it wasn't a glitch. It was the market. And what the Fed did was intervene to hold those market forces at bay, because if interest rates were allowed to rise, then the debt would be a huge problem right now, because now we would be stuck with a massive bill on all this debt and we can't pay it. So in order to you know, prevent that from happening. That's why the Fed came back uh, to the repo market uh, with all this QE. It was to artificially suppress rates again and to keep those market forces at bay a while longer. But the longer they do that, the bigger the problem, right? It's like, you know, if you go back to wage and price controls, when the government, you know, put price controls in the 1970s under Nixon, you know, the longer you control the price, eventually, you know, you have to remove the control and then the price really shoots up. Uh, it goes to, you know, where it needed to be. But the longer you suppress it, generally, the higher it goes when you remove uh, the artificial suppressant. The same thing is going to happen with the Fed. The longer the Fed succeeds in artificially suppressing short-term interest rates now, the higher rates will ultimately go when it can no longer suppress them, when market forces ultimately prevail. Because by holding rates artificially low longer, that enables even more debt to be built up. You see, the sooner rates spike up, the sooner the debt bubble stops expanding. But the problem is the sooner the bubble stops expanding, that's when it starts contracting. And that's what scares the hell out of the Fed. 
So the Fed wants it to grow and grow and grow, but it can't grow forever. And the bigger it grows, the worse it's going to be when it pops. And that's what we're staring at. And it's not like this is a problem in 20 years. It's a problem now, and it could explode any moment. The fact that the Fed has been able to delay that day of reckoning doesn't mean that that day isn't coming. And of course, it's going to be much worse given the number of years that we've already delayed it. But, you know, the real opportunity here is you have all these uh, congressmen and, you know, senators, House members, uh, basically, especially the Democrats, where it's, it is it is really frustrating. First of all, you see all these Democrats talking about how important it is to have an independent Fed. Like they didn't give a damn about Fed independence until Donald Trump started bashing the Fed on Twitter. Now, all of a sudden, you know, they're for Fed independence. Believe me, uh, they're not going to be for Fed independence when a Democrat uh, is in office and they're demanding the Fed bail them out. What they're really doing and what is really you know frustrating is you see all these congressmen basically complaining to the Fed, right, that, you know, wages are too low, unemployment is too high, particularly for minorities and African-Americans, and the wealth disparity is too high between uh, white and black. And, and, and what is the Fed going to do about it? Like, like the Fed could do anything about it. I mean, what they want the Fed to do is create more inflation. In fact, some of these guys are even saying to the Fed, why don't we you know, have lower rates? I mean, inflation is still below 2%. And, and uh, Powell agrees. And, he, and he, he laments that, right? Because according to Powell, the holy grail of monetary policy is 2% inflation. And it's some kind of failure that we don't have it, right? That we're below 2%. And so the Fed is striving to get up to 2%. But you know, again, they can never explain why it's better for the economy if the cost of living goes up 2% a year than 1% a year. I mean, why is it so much better? Or, you know, why is it so much better for your money to lose 2% of its purchasing power a year versus 1%? In fact, why is it good for your money to lose any purchasing power? Wouldn't it be better if your money gained purchasing power? Wouldn't it be better if the cost of living went down? Of course, nobody bothers to ask these obvious questions other than me, but you actually have these congressmen saying, hey, can't you do more to help create jobs by you know, printing more money and lowering interest rates? Because these guys still think that there's some kind of trade-off. If we just have more inflation, then we'll have more jobs. No, we don't. We'll just have more inflation. In fact, you don't create jobs by creating inflation. You destroy jobs. If you increase the cost of goods and services, fewer people can afford to buy goods and services. So you actually harm the economy. You harm employment by creating inflation. What creates more employment is when goods and services are more affordable by more people. And the way things become more affordable to more people is when their costs go down, when prices fall. That is the true secret to economic success, but nobody understands that. But the ultimate irony, of course, is when you have these Democrats uh, complaining about, you know, the disparity in employment rates, right? The unemployment rate for African-Americans, even though it's come down, it's still double what it is for, you know, white Americans. And you see these guys complain about that, but then they're also saying they want a $15 minimum wage. In fact, there was one of these Democratic uh, congressmen today, or yesterday rather, he said he, he actually wants a $20 minimum wage, but he'll settle for 15. I mean, 20, hey, why not 100, right? But at the same time, these guys were complaining about all the unemployment for African-Americans. They want $15 minimum wage. Well, all that's going to do is create even more unemployment for African-Americans. The reason 
are one of the main reasons that unemployment rates are so high now for African-Americans is because of the current minimum wage, right? See, the minimum wage affects lower skilled workers. And since the African-Americans make up a disproportionate number, percentage of those lowered skilled workers relative to their percentage of the population, then obviously they are going to be disproportionately negatively impacted by the minimum wage. And the higher you raise the minimum wage, the more that's going to negatively impact African-Americans. More of them are going to be priced out of the labor market. And so they're not going to get jobs and they're not going to get training to get better jobs, right? And to increase their skills. And of course, the other uh, laws that are working against uh, African-Americans are other laws that have made it more expensive to hire them uh, because of the uh, litigation involved and all of these anti-discrimination laws that, you know, add to the cost of hiring African-Americans because you dramatically increase your risk of litigation. And so uh, it's just an expense that a lot of small employers uh, just can't afford. And so they have to avoid it by not hiring people that are protected by these special privileges because it's such an expensive addition. If you just, you know, hire a white guy, you don't have to worry about anything. I mean, if you fire him, you fire him. He can't sue you for discrimination. Uh, you know, he can't sue you for anything. Uh, but, you know, I mean, unless he's older, then he can sue you for age discrimination. But I, I mean, but you, you certainly have a, a greater chance of being sued if you get somebody really in these protected classes. So it's government laws, but you have these congressman blaming the Fed for problems that they created and which the Fed can't do anything about. And in fact, one of the other reasons that you have this big disparity in wealth is because of the asset bubble. But why is the Fed creating asset bubbles? Because the governments are running these huge deficits because Congress is spending all this money. They're not collecting the tax revenue. So the Fed is monetizing all this debt. And one of the effects of this debt monetization is to prop up asset prices. And so, uh, you know, African-Americans, you know, disproportionately don't have as much in the stock market as white Americans. And so they're not benefiting from the asset bubble to the same extent. And so if you're measuring wealth uh, and you're including stock market assets and also real estate assets. And, you know, again, too, a lot of these congressmen are really upset at the home ownership rate being so low for African-Americans. In fact, right now, I think it's kind of a record low. Uh, African-Americans are not buying homes and they, they think this is a problem and they want the Fed to do things to encourage African-Americans to buy homes because they think that home ownership is the secret to gaining wealth. And they think that a lot of African-Americans are being denied that ticket to easy street. They can't accumulate wealth because it's harder for them to buy a home. And so therefore the Fed should somehow in Congress should make it easier for poorer African-Americans to become homeowners so that they can come become wealthy, which is complete nonsense because houses don't make you rich. Houses can make you poor, right? Because houses don't create wealth they consume your wealth because houses have to be maintained. They are expensive. Things go wrong. You have to pay to maintain them. And then you have to pay insurance to insure them. You have to pay property taxes. You have all sorts of expenses uh, that you incur when you become a homeowner. I don't know when members of Congress are going to realize that just simply owning a home and living in it is not how you achieve wealth.
You achieve wealth by working hard and saving and underconsuming and increasing your human capital and starting businesses or, you know, and growing businesses. You don't get wealthy just by living in a house. Now, there were periods of time where that did happen. People did buy houses and they did go up, but that was a bubble or luck, right? It wasn't real. I mean, look at what's happened in Connecticut. Look at how much wealth was destroyed by homeowners in Connecticut. I mean, I went over some of the prices. I mean, in Connecticut, certainly Fairfield County, Connecticut, prices are down 20, 30% or more in the past 20 years. I mean, there are certainly people who, if they sell their house today in Connecticut, you know, would get half of what they paid, you know, and obviously if they made a down payment, right? Not, you know, they took out money, they've lost 100% of their down payment. But meanwhile, you know, they've been making mortgage payments for 10, 20 years, property taxes that go up every year. Probably their insurance goes up every year. Their maintenance costs go up every year. I mean, people have saved a fortune by not owning homes in Connecticut. I mean, the people who have been renting, see these Democrats are all upset that African-Americans are renting instead of owning. Well, if they were living in Connecticut, they saved a fortune by renting instead of owning. The owners took a huge loss. The renters are, are smiling right? They didn't lose all that money. They got a good deal. They got to pay rent and the landlord was stuck with all the depreciation and all the bills. I mean, when I moved to Connecticut in 2005, I got to tell you, the optimism was off the charts. It was insane how optimistic homeowners were about the future appreciation of their homes. And again, since then, since 2005, you definitely down about 50%, you know, over the last 15 years, you know, probably people by at that point, people probably thought their houses would have at least doubled, if not tripled by now. I mean, a lot of people who were betting their retirement on their home values, uh, you know, bet wrong and lost big. Uh, so, you know, rather than trying to push people to borrow money that buy homes they can't afford, people should be content to rent and then use their savings uh, to legitimately grow their wealth. But anyway, I want to go back to the minimum wage because one of these congressmen had asked the Fed if they had ever actually commissioned a study right, if they could do a study on how a $15 an hour federal minimum wage would impact the economy, you know, and of course, you know, whenever he's asked about a particular policy, Powell never wants to give his opinion on it. Uh, but he admitted that they hadn't done a study. And this congressman as well, don't you think you, you should do a study, uh, which of course would be a complete waste of money. I mean, why study something that's obvious? I mean, it's obvious what the effect would be, it would be terrible. I mean, it's basic economics. I mean, if you make something more expensive, you reduce demand. If you increase the cost of hiring low-skilled workers, then fewer low-skilled workers are going to be hired. In fact, the biggest impact of a $15 federal minimum wage would be on the poorer states, right, where the wages are already lower. And so a $15 minimum would have a much bigger impact than if you impose it on a state where the medium wages were, were a lot higher. Now, I did hear, you know, one of these uh, congressmen asked uh, Powell, if he thought that the global debt bubble or all the global debt, you know, represented some type of systemic threat to the global economy, that, that question came up. But nobody asked Powell whether our debt, whether the U.S. debt re represented a systemic threat to our economy, which it does. I mean, right now, paradoxically, our debt is good because the more debt we have, the more money the Fed prints to buy it up. And the more money the Fed prints, the higher the stock market goes. And everybody confuses that with legitimate economic growth. But at some point, there's a limit to how much money the Fed could create before the bottom drops out of the dollar, before the dollar bubble pops. We are going to reach that point. I mean, if we don't reach it 
uh, you know, before this election, we'll certainly reach it after. Definitely, if, uh, uh, if uh, Sanders is elected, we'll, we'll reach it even sooner. Anyway, I want to finish up today's podcast talking a little bit about Bitcoin, because I've noticed a lot of people on Twitter are making a big deal of the fact that I've been kind of silent about Bitcoin as the price has been rising higher and higher. And Bitcoin continues to move up. I mean, as I am recording this, we're about $10,400. So back above a 10,000 handle, we're now a little bit more than 50% uh, of the the record high, which was around 20,000. And so, yeah, a lot of spec money has been coming in to the Bitcoin market. I keep reading all of these articles uh, about Bitcoin has cemented its status as digital gold. And this is all propaganda. I mean, Bitcoin hasn't cemented anything. And in fact, the bigger story of the Bitcoin rally has actually been the altcoins. Because if you look at uh, Bitcoin's share or market dominance, when this rally began, Bitcoin was about 69% of the total market cap of the crypto world. And right now, it represents 62% of total market cap. There are 5,110 cryptocurrencies. At least those are the cryptocurrencies that are on coinmarketcap.com. Again, the inflation continues. They continue to create uh, these coins because there are zero barriers to entry. Anybody can create a cryptocurrency. And of course, none of them have any intrinsic value. So you could create them uh, you know, in infinite uh, supply. Uh, but right now, it's the other currencies that have moved up much more than Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is actually losing value if you measure it in terms of all these other cryptocurrencies that are rising in price by more uh, than Bitcoin. But the reason I even wanted to talk about Bitcoin today is to go over one of the, uh, the, the arguments that uh, the Bitcoin guys make to try to justify it as money and to try to say that it can succeed as money or that it could be digital gold and the argument they make and i don't know if i've ever actually addressed it on this podcast which is why i wanted to throw this out there now but you'll hear a lot of the the bitcoin people say that hey look look at gold right gold right now the price is let's say 1565 an ounce they'll say that a lot of that price is a function of people buying it as a safe haven, as a store of value. The monetary, the fact that central banks are holding onto it, that is part of the demand. And if you took all that demand away, right, if gold only uh, was bought for its industrial uses, whether it's jewelry, which is the major use of gold, or if gold was used in electronics or dentistry, those other things, if those were the only uses and nobody was buying it as a store of value uh, as a monetary asset the price would be a lot lower right we don't really know what the price would be but let's say uh, the price would be $500 an ounce I don't know what it would be but if it was $500 an ounce clearly nobody would mine it because it costs a lot more than $500 an ounce to mine gold but of course if all of the gold that's currently held by central banks were to come into the market if all the gold that's being held by investors were to come into the market, well, that could supply the jewelry market and the electronic market for a while before we exhausted the supply and we had to go mine it again, right? But I don't really know. I mean, I just guessed that number. But what the argument is that, well, let's say the real price of gold would be $500 an ounce, but it's $1,500 an ounce because of its monetary value. Well, there's $1,000 of value that's really not there that is simply being you know, assigned to gold because it's money. And 
and and therefore we can separate that and say hey bitcoin can have that thousand dollars worth of value whatever that if gold can have a value that's above its intrinsic value because it's being used as money well then bitcoin can have a value above its intrinsic value because it's used as a store of value or a safe haven and you know while the intrinsic value of gold is some positive number the intrinsic value of bitcoin is zero but if you want to say well yes the the value for bitcoin in industry and in jewelry is zero but the value is fifty thousand as a store of value well that fifty thousand is you know why it's digital gold that it can have that value because if gold can have a price that's above its use value in industry, then so could Bitcoin, even if Bitcoin's use value in industry is zero. And that's where the Bitcoin guys are wrong. And one of the reasons is, even if the price of gold would be $500, let's say, an ounce, but for investor demand, but the presence of investor demand pushes the price of gold up to $2,000, that doesn't mean that uh, industrial demand goes away. Even if gold is $2,000, even if it's $5,000, they're still going to make gold jewelry. Jewelers are still going to be in the market paying $5,000 an ounce to buy gold because there's still going to be demand for gold even at that price. Real world demand. Gold will still be used in electronics. It will still be used in dentistry even if the price is $5,000 an ounce even if it's $10,000, there's always gonna be demand. Maybe the demand will be less, maybe they'll substitute other metals at some point, but there will always be some demand. That is part of uh, the appeal of having a luxury good uh, as money, a luxury commodity, because luxury items are always in demand at some level, right? So there's always gonna be that real world demand creating a market for gold, right? And that is the store of value. You are storing the value of gold as a metal rather than using it for that value today, right? Rather than taking your gold and turning into jewelry today, you're holding onto it in the form of a bar. So it could be turned into jewelry in the future. And that jewelry will have value or to be used in electronics or, or aerospace or whatever it's going to get used. You are storing that value that there's a market demand for. But when it comes to Bitcoin, you're not storing any value because you can't do anything with your Bitcoin today. You won't be able to do anything with your Bitcoin tomorrow. You can only hold on to it and try to give it to somebody else. But if that's the only value you have, then it can't work. It is ultimately going to implode. And it doesn't matter where it is today because people are buying it. And that's why the price is going up. But when the speculative demand goes away, there is no real demand like there is for gold because you don't do anything with it. So as soon as the people buying Bitcoin want out of Bitcoin, then the price implodes. And in fact, as the price has been moving up, more and more money needs to come into the market to buy a Bitcoin to push the price up. As Bitcoins get more expensive to buy, right? More money has to come in in order to enable the money to get out, right? Because obviously people are trying to get out and they're trying to pull money out by selling. And now greater and greater quantities of money have to keep going in in order to enable this but that can't happen eventually you run out of buyers and the market implodes so bitcoin is not digital gold it's it, it's digital but it ain't gold right and it doesn't matter that the price has gone up 
Uh, because if you haven't sold, which most Bitcoin hodlers by definition haven't done, in fact, most of the people who are telling me how much money they're making in Bitcoin, when I ask them if they sold, they say, no, why would I sell? It's going to keep going up. Well, exactly. Until you sell, you haven't actually made anything. 